So uh, we're going to do what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, Bible app, anything to access the Bible. There's even a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you would turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. So Paul writes this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this message. Uh, Spirit of God, I just ask that you would come in power uh, and speak powerfully to us. Just as Paul has asked here, we ask for that same power to work among us, open our eyes and our ears and our minds to receive and to understand what it is you want to teach us. We pray that you'd accomplish the good purpose for which you sent your word today in us uh, in all the ways that you want to do that. And as I always ask now, eternal God, could you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, the scene is uh, familiar to you if you've ever seen Spielberg's 1991 film, Hook. Uh, Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman, it's one of my favorites. Uh, and the scene is familiar, and it's also like an, an essential turning point in the film as CEO Peter Banning sits around the table of lost boys in Neverland. But as the pots and pans and platters all arrive on the table and are served, Peter is both disappointed as well as deeply confused to find that all the serving dishes that have just come out, they're empty. Everything's empty. And then what he finds, this is the part he finds even more confusing, is that although everything appears empty to him, the lost boys, they all start digging in, grabbing everything, like feasting on meats and breads that he can't see, uh, devouring desserts and drinks that he can't taste, and in kind of desperation, I mean, he's hungry. He, he just politely and quietly asks a friend nearby, he's like, what's the deal? Where's all the food? To which he is informed that this is a never feast, uh, what was apparently one of his favorite games as a boy, where uh, every drink and dish must be imagined first before it can be drunk and eaten, which, yeah, that's a little bit of a problem. It's a problem for Peter because that part of Peter is, let's just say it's no longer operational. Uh, it, it's a, a distant, long-forgotten memory of someone he used to be before he left the land of pirates and pixies for the grown-up world of business and finance, uh, family and responsibility. Because this CEO, Peter Banning, if you didn't know already, is none other than Peter Pan himself, just an older podgy, uh, stressed out, 50-something version of him who now has no memory whatsoever 
of his life before he left Neverland, but which he now must quickly rediscover, uh, not only if he's ever going to eat again, but if he is ever going to rescue his children who have been kidnapped by the infamous Captain Hook in order to lure him back to Neverland for one last battle. But the thing about this dinner scene I'm wanting you to notice in particular, and it's going to kind of highlight where we're going today, is this. Peter is he's a loving husband and father. He's a dog owner. Uh, he's a successful businessman. Um, life's okay. I mean, it's going good. It's good. Um, there's all kinds of things that are just normal and good for him. And yet, because Peter has closed off or maybe just discarded this imaginative side of who he is, perhaps believing as many of us do, at some point in our lives we come to this place where we think imagination, play, that's, that's only for children. Because he's done that, he's starving himself, figuratively speaking. Although I guess actually in this sense he's literally starving. But he's starving himself. He's hindering himself in, in general in his life from the fullness of life that he might otherwise be able to experience by doing that. And I bring it up as we conclude this summer teaching series today on spiritual formation, which we've entitled In Formation. Because in many ways, the exact same thing that was true of Peter in his life is true for many of us in our lives today. Namely, um, you know, we've got our careers, we've got our families, we've got our friends. Life is, I mean, it's, it's okay. It's going okay. Um, we found a good church that we can go to. Maybe we even feel like relatively solid in our Christian faith and practice. Feels like it's going pretty good. And yet, just like Peter... We've closed ourselves off from. We have lost sight of the true value of things like imagination in play in our lives. Things that have value for our life in general and for our spiritual formation in particular. Just believing, as many of us eventually do, such things are childish, unspiritual. Imagination in play, come on. And yet the result is our faith and our formation are starving. We are hindered spiritually from the fullness of life that we might otherwise be able to experience and that God desires for us to enter into. So I'm going to take a risk with you today. I'm going to kind of step out on a limb with you. It's a calculated risk. Um, and talk about the spiritual discipline of, of play, how we are formed by imagination. It's risky uh, in a bunch of different ways. It's risky because... Uh, this is not a discipline that you're going to commonly find in almost any book on spiritual disciplines. So I guess I'm, I'm risking my credibility with you. You might be like, what's this guy even talking about? He doesn't even know. We shouldn't listen to him at all. Um, it's risky because even just this language alone is easy to misunderstand, particularly if you come to the Christian faith with a measure of skepticism or suspicion. Uh, like just, you might even see the title of this message and be like, right, <laughs> exactly. I always knew that, you know, you Christians were just kind of making this up as you go, so thanks for the confirmation of that. I, I knew it. And yet I think that the potential rewards of looking at this together actually far outweigh any risks that might be present there, because while there's all kinds of other important disciplines that we could have covered in a series like this, we closed out today, I wanted something that I felt would tie together everything that we've been looking at over the past weeks in a way that would bring it all together. And when I was trying to think, like, what would that be? I thought, I just thought, let me think about my own experience of spiritual formation. 
ask myself, what is one of the things that has had the most deep and profound transformation for me? And when I thought about this discipline, I can honestly tell you, I don't think any other discipline has transformed me in the same way as this one. And the reason for that is actually the other reward I think we'll absolutely experience by looking at this discipline together, which is this. Learning to use the discipline of imagination and play actually aligns very much with the way that God designed our brains to work. I don't know if you knew this. This is something I uh, learned or rediscovered again in a book that uh, I've been going through right now called The Other Half of the Church. It's a book written by Ph.D. and clinical psychologist Jim Wilder, pastor and author Michael Hancock, who unpack basically what they describe as the neuroscience of spiritual formation, which maybe that sounds incredibly boring, maybe that sounds intimidating or uh, outside above your pay grade. It certainly is above mine. And yet, when you read the book, they, they do it quite simply for us laymen, and uh, really what they're just talking about is how the different sides of our brain work. You know, we often hear about left brain and right brain things. Here, what they unpack and are pointing out very simply is that much, almost all of what we do classically in spiritual formation is about logical left-brained activities, which are all really good things, but think about that. That ignores an entire other half of the brain that God created and gave us, a, a side of our brain which actually holds essential things for our formation as well, things we need in order to actually be fully formed in Christ. And so, as they say in the book, the point isn't that we would just abandon all these left-brain spiritual practices in favor of right-brain things, but that we would become whole-brained Christians. To be whole-brained Christians who make use of these classic spiritual disciplines, study of God's Word, prayer, journaling, all the things we've been looking at, but who also develop right-brain pursuits as well. Things like joy, community, identity. Things which, which take all those truths we've learned cognitively in our left brain and then help us to experience them, to, to feel them, to see them in a way that's radically different but equally important to our spiritual formation. So that's where we're going to go today. I hope you'll trust me to walk into this because I know, like I get it, um, asking you to do this and at this point in the sermon you're probably feeling as confused and strange as if I sat you down at a table of empty bowls and platters and said, eat up. Um, but I've really been praying for this message a lot this week. Uh, and I'm really hopeful that this, what we're going to look at today, is actually going to unlock some things for a lot of you. It's going to unlock some places and some doors that maybe you didn't even know existed. But because they're kind of left unaddressed and unexplored, this is the thing that's left you feeling just plateaued feeling hindered in your spiritual growth because you just didn't know that there was anything more to experience. And it's just sort of felt like, fine. I'm hoping today this will unlock so much more than fine. So, in order to help that happen, I'm praying for as many of us as possible today. I want to look at this passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in just two ways today. We're just going to ask two questions. As we look at this discipline of imagination and play, we're going to ask, first of all, what, what is it? Like, what is this? And then secondly, how do we practice it? Just those two questions. What is this? Like, where, where, where do we see this in the Bible? And then how do we practice it? What does this actually look like at the end of the day to do this? So 
if you've closed your Bible, your Bible app, whatever you're using, if you'd open it again with me to this passage, Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14, follow along with me as we now dive into this last, very much now right-brained discipline together. Okay, so as we consider this discipline of play and imagination, let's ask first of all, what is it? What is this? And to put it simply, just so we can have a working definition on the table, I believe the discipline of play, to be formed by imagination, is simply this. Responding to the Holy Spirit's invitation, which I believe is found everywhere in Scripture, to picture truths of God's Word in such a way that's personally meaningful and that transforms bare written word into life-giving truths. Okay, that's just a very simple definition. We'll unpack that a lot more, but that's basically what this discipline is. Responding to the Holy Spirit's invitation, which I th- we're going to see is found everywhere in Scripture, to picture, to visualize, to, to see in your mind's eyes the truths of God's Word that you're studying in such a way that's personally meaningful to you and that transforms bare written word into life-giving truths. Now, having said that, I want to like, quickly give a bit of a qualification to that definition just so we're clear on what I'm saying this discipline is and is not. Because whenever you talk about the imaginative power of the brain, you talk about visualizing things in a way that's personally meaningful to you, particularly in this cultural moment we're living in, what I don't mean, I want to be careful not to imply, is anything like the practice of manifesting. I don't know if you've heard about this, you've maybe read it, seen TikToks about it, whatever, where, where I just get a dream or a strong picture in my mind of a future that I want to see happen, and I just will it into existence by sheer force of my imagination. Okay, that's not at all what I'm trying to imply by being formed by imagination. The reason you can know that that's not what I'm trying to imply is in remembering how I just defined this discipline, where we said we're picturing truths of God's word in a way that's personally meaningful to you, not picturing things that are personally meaningful to you and then attaching the weight and significance of God's word to it. You see how those are different things? It's not the same thing. We're picturing the truths already found in God's word. But I did say that this is something that's found and the Spirit is inviting us to everywhere in Scripture. Okay, so all I want to do for the next few minutes is unpack this invitation that we see found in this passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in particular. But honestly, once you see it, like if I do my job correctly this morning, I think you're going to begin to see this everywhere in your Bible going forward from today. Okay, so let's do this. Look back with me at verse 14. Paul begins this section of his letter writing, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Okay, I kneel for this reason. What reason? Uh, What are you talking about? Well, if you look back at the very beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1, you'll see that this is actually a sentence that Paul started back at the beginning of the chapter and then broke off from for 13 verses to talk about something else, which is actually not weird for Paul. He does that a lot. He seems to have trouble with grammar and structure like this. He goes off on all kinds of tangents. But so when you follow the, you know, breadcrumbs, if you will, from verse 14 back to verse 1, what you realize then is that the reason Paul is bowing on his knees before the Father is actually to pray because of everything that he just unpacked in chapter 2. 
That's, that's, what he's, that's what's leading him to prayer. And I know it's been a couple of years since we looked through the book of Ephesians in particular. So just to remind you, chapter 2 is all about how through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we who were formerly dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. It also talks about how Jesus has broken down this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles and made us into this one new man, this, this living temple where now God dwells by his spirit. It's just these staggering truths um, that, that, as we see now in our passage, lead Paul to want to pray for this Gentile church in Ephesus. He's just overwhelmed by these truths and lead and be like, I need to pray that this is going like, to light up for you guys. And he prays for them what? What does he pray? Well, let's read again what he prays for them, starting in verse 16 now. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, this is God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Wow. Okay, so Paul's quite a prayer, isn't he? And that's a lot there. But ultimately... Essentially, really what Paul is asking for there is two specific things in this prayer. First of all, he prays that God would strengthen these believers by his power in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And then secondly, by the means of that power, they'd be able to grasp or comprehend the unfathomable size of God's love for them in Jesus in such a way that as they know it more and more, they're filled to all the fullness of God. That's what he's praying for. Now, I know that first prayer request back at the beginning of verse 17, that might sound a little odd to some of us. You might be asking, like, why would Paul be praying for a church filled with followers of Jesus that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith? I mean, isn't he already dwelling there? The answer is, yeah, yes, he is. But what Paul is ultimately praying for there in that first request is, is that their relational experience of that reality would become deeper and deeper, that they would become more and more aware of all that they now have with Christ dwelling in their hearts by faith. Interesting to note as well in Paul's second request there in the second half of verse 17, Paul doesn't ask that these new believers would be rooted and established, or some of your translations will say rooted and grounded in truth. You notice that? He doesn't say you being rooted and grounded in truth, in, in right doctrine, in these kinds of things. No, he prays that they would be rooted an agricultural term, and grounded, an architectural term, in God's love for them. Rooted and grounded in love, a truth about God evidenced by all the staggering truths that he just unpacked in chapter 2, but which, look, he now invites them to experience. I want you to know this more and more fully, to, to grasp and try to comprehend the vast, unsearchable dimensions of God's love. In fact, I think Daryl Johnson captures the heart of Paul's prayer best in his commentary on this passage when he notes this. In chapter 1, Paul prayed that we might know the good news. In chapter 3, he prays that we might experience the good news. But here's where this all comes together. In these last two verses of our passage, this beautiful doxology that Paul concludes his prayer with, there in verse 20, if you look with me here, where he says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, and all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Notice two things about Paul's prayer. First of all, Paul references that very same power 
that he asked God to grant this church back in verses 16 and 18, that their experience of Jesus' redemption would be deeper and deeper for them. And then secondly, look, in context of describing the vast dimensions of God's love for them, just as he prayed they'd begin to grasp, he states that God's able to do immeasurably more than, look, all you ask or imagine. He's able to do more than you ask or imagine. So I'm saying that means Paul's prayer for this church recorded in this passage, this is the Spirit's invitation to them as well as to us today into this discipline of imagination. He's saying, I want you to, I'm inviting you into imagination, but just know God's able to do even more than you could even ask or imagine. He's able to do even more than that. Which again, this discipline of imagination, remember what it is. We are picturing the truths about God, visualizing them, trying to see them in a way that's personally meaningful and that transforms just the facts, the the left brain knowledge into living, life-giving truths. Because look again at verse 19. Paul tells them, the love of God for you, it surpasses knowledge. It's beyond knowing. You're never going to be able to grasp the vastness of it. And yet, look, in the verse just previous to that, he still invites them by the power of God working in them to try. To to try and grasp it. To try and picture in every way you can, he says, what is the width and length and height and depth of God's love for you. Engage your imagination, Paul says. In such a way that with, whether you ever reach the edges of God's love for you or not, which you won't, you'll still be transformed down to the very core of your being by sensing, by experiencing the vastness of God's love for you. Why? Well, because what God knows about us and what I believe Paul is trying to describe for us in this prayer is that to be fully formed in Christ is a whole-brained activity. We need the whole brain in order for this to happen. That is, it's not solely just learning and the study of truths about God's word. It's not even knowing them necessarily. It's the experience of them as well. Like in the same way, like when I tell my daughters at times, do you know I've loved you since before you were born? That's information. But it doesn't mean the same thing as when I start describing things like how I used to sing to them while they were still inside their mother. Or how I would like stand above their cribs sometimes when they'd finally gone to bed and just stare with wonder at their perfect little faces. And they start to picture and visualize those things. And all of a sudden it takes, I've loved you since before you were born. And now they can imagine it and feel it in a totally different way. Something especially important to be able to kind of visualize and see for believers, just like the ones in our passage today, who are living post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus. They don't have Jesus there to be able to physically see and touch him, so they need to invoke their imagination in some ways to do this. But actually, you see the Spirit inviting us into this discipline in the ministry of Jesus, as well as all through the Old Testament as well. We see it everywhere. So, for instance, for us today, it's the reason Paul doesn't just tell us, hey, grow deeper in your love for God. But back in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. Or when Paul is trying to tell us that, hey, following Jesus is going to require effort and self-discipline in 1 Corinthians 9. Instead of just saying that, he describes an Olympic runner straining towards the finish line, giving everything she has in order to win the prize. He wants us to see that in our mind, to know 
what the truth is that he's trying to communicate. It's why in his earthly ministry, Jesus almost never teaches the crowds with direct kind of bullet point theology. He's always using stories and parables. It's why when Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples as they mourn over his departure, he doesn't just say, guys, relax. I'm going to be with you always. Instead, he speaks a familiar wedding blessing over them. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. Why? Because he wants to connect a picture of the strength of a marriage covenant to his promise to be with them always. That's why in the Old Testament, the prophet Nathan doesn't just come up to David and say, David, you need to confess. You're a murdering adulterer. Instead, he draws him to repentance by capturing his heart and his senses with a story about a beloved sheep stolen by someone who had thousands of sheep. Are you beginning to see this? You're going to see what's going on. I mean, the book of Ephesians, as small as it is, contains some of the most profound truths about the gospel and its implications that we have. But as you can clearly see, rather than engage the left brain alone with just bare facts and doctrine, glorious as they are, Paul is very much calling his readers to engage their right brain with the discipline of imagination and play as well. Why? Because he knows that if we're ever truly going to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, it's not sufficient to just be told about the vastness of God's love for us in Jesus. That's a primarily left brain information only kind of aspect. We need to be able to feel and experience and and see that in our mind's eyes as well. Something only a whole brained engagement of the truth of God's word can ultimately provide for us. Okay, so that's what this discipline is, this discipline of imagination and play. The last thing I want to look at together with you is how is it practiced? How do we do this? How do, how do we make use of this in our own formation? And I realize that some of you, even at this point already, might want to kind of push back on what we've been talking about and just say, well, aren't those just examples? Those are just examples of how God was trying to communicate something true about himself in a particular time and place. Like, where do we see a direct command? I want you to imagine. I want you to play with me. Like, where do we see that direct command from Jesus today? It's a great question. Because, I mean, I'll grant you, no question, these these are examples, even just the ones I've shown you. These are just examples of God trying to communicate to his people in history. But my response to your question then is going to be to simply ask whether or not God is not also teaching us through those examples in particular times and places how to grasp, how to experience those same truths about himself today in a way that just a logical left brain pursuit of himself could never bring about. He's teaching us through those examples. This is how I want you to access that and really sense and feel it. And so in order to help us kind of see what I'm talking about here and how you could practice this in your own lives, how I pray Christ will dwell in your hearts more deeply. You'll experience greater filling of him in your own lives. All I want to do for the last few minutes of our time together here is just to unpack my own practice of this discipline, like what it looks like on an everyday basis for me. Not at all, please. Not at all trying to set myself up as the standard of how you do this. I'm going to give you an example of what this looks like. It'll need to be your own practice of it for it to be meaningful to you. But this is my own practice. So to begin, I want to walk through a psalm that we actually began our series with back at the beginning, talking about the study of God's word from Psalm 1. So in Psalm 1 there, David writes, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish. Which is already an interesting example of what I'm talking about, right? Because what David is describing here is a very left-brained activity, a study of God's word, right? And, and the truth about that practice, which he's expressing, is the blessing of God, uh, the, the, the spiritual grounding and nourishment someone receives by practicing that discipline. But look, he's describing it in such a right-brained way. He doesn't just say, study God's word and you'll be directed in ways that lead to blessing. He could have done that. I mean, the book of Psalms would be a lot shorter if he just did that. But instead, he talks about walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the path that sinners take, sitting in the seats of those who mock God and his word, and how doing so leads to this weightless, groundless existence, as opposed to what he then contrasts with the experience of someone who delights themselves in God's word someone who meditates on it day and life, how the person who follows that path is like this well-watered tree that brings forth all kinds of fruit. Its leaf does not wither. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, why would he go to all the trouble of saying all that? Why does he present all these different images to engage our imagination if this isn't an invitation into a whole brain kind of formation? I mean, I guess you could say, you know, David's just an artsy, poetic guy, and so he's, he's being poetic. Maybe. But just as you read through the scriptures and you encounter this exact same kind of communication again and again from multiple different authors, from even Jesus himself, all of a sudden that line of reason becomes very less and less likely. Particularly as well when you add to that what we now know about how our brains work, how, how the left and brain, right brains function together all at once and they need to in order for things to fully be grasped and known. So for me, Psalm 1, it's a psalm I return to every day, actually. And as I'm reading it, although, as you can see, I, I know it by heart now. I don't have to read it. But as I'm going through it, first of all, just look at these words here. I'm picturing, first of all, um, dark paths. I'm picturing dark paths in my mind and thinking of people, thinking of situations and pursuits that I know rob me of life. And then I'm praying out of that. I'm saying, God, would you direct me away from those paths that I know are going to Lead me away from you and lead me away from life. And then I'm looking out my front window. I have a seat where I sit every morning to study. And I'm seeing these big sturdy trees and I'm imagining the life-giving water that's being sucked up through the roots all the way up into the branches and the, the life and the nutrition, the, the nourishment that these trees have because of that. I'm asking God, would you nourish me like that with your word? Sometimes I picture uh, an athlete who's well hydrated, who's just able to accomplish great things because they've filled themselves up with what they need in order to accomplish it. It could be anything. Listen, this is why I'm saying these are images I have. It has to be something meaningful to you personally. Picturing these things and making it real to you. I picture the strength and groundedness of well-watered trees in the midst of some of the windstorms we get here, how they stand firm, and then I see dead and dry leaves being like, blown down the street, and I'm like, God, root me in yourself in such a way that the winds of life don't just like blow me away like that. All of which together, do you see, that creates a powerfully more transforming experience in me every morning than if I was just being told, 
Study God's word and you'll be blessed. It's powerfully more transforming to engage my imagination in this practice. Another passage I go to every morning. Paul's description of the armor of God found later on in Ephesians chapter 6, which he compels us here to put on this armor that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. There again, I'm going to ask you, why would Paul go to all the trouble of describing all these individual pieces of armor and how they protect us in all these different ways if he isn't inviting us into this whole brain formation? He could have just said, the devil's going to try to attack you in all kinds of ways, but don't worry, God will protect you. Instead, he presents his readers with familiar pictures of the different pieces of armor worn in battle in order to engage their imagination so that they might experience, they might feel the the weight of the different pieces and the protection that God says they have rather than just know it as information. They can see it and feel it. So each morning, I ask God to cover my family with each piece of his armor that we may stand firm against the schemes of the devil that day. I actually picture each piece being placed on each one of my, my family members as well as myself and asking God to protect us in all kinds of different ways, whether it's like protecting um, the, my, my wife. I know she's shared with some of you and a lot of us about struggles with anxiety. I, I pray the breastplate of righteousness as it covers her, as the crushing weight of anxiety presses down on her, there'd be like a, a shield between that weight that would just allow her to breathe freely again. When I think about the, the voices and the temptations and pressures coming against my daughters every day, the, the voices whispering in their ears every day, I pray for the helmet of salvation to cover them, that they'd be able to just walk away unafraid and unaffected as the helmet of salvation just covers over their ears, almost like a noise-canceling headphones. With all of this, again, I want to reiterate, I'm not just picturing nice things that I want for my life and for my family. I'm taking what God's word has already said is true and then engaging my imagination in such a way that informs and inspires my prayers. It forms me more deeply into the image of God as I see and feel and experience the fullness of God's love for me. It helps me to see and sense God's protection of me, his provision for my family. It helps deepen my trust. When I can like sense, I don't just like know it cognitively, but I can sense, okay, God, you are covering my family. I see it. It also continues to inspire my worship of him. As I just see like, God, look at what you've done for me. My relationship with you is amazing. In fact, if I could boil this whole discipline down to one thought for you to take home today, it'd be this. Whatever it is, whatever you're studying, whatever you're reading, whatever you've learned, take what you know to be true about God. And then just begin to ask yourself questions, which we don't often ask in study. But ask yourself questions like, how does that make me feel? Not like, well, what's the Greek of this? And what's the, how does that make me feel to know that that's true? What does that look like? And I picture it in my mind. Um, this, this is a great exercise. Uh, sort of like taken over for us by that series, The Chosen. But as you're watching um, or, or reading through passages in the Gospels, different things with Jesus, try to picture yourself in the moment as it's happening. What would that look like? What would that have felt like? What would that meal Jesus provided taste like? Really put yourself in the moment to feel and sense these are real things that happened. And they're true things that affect us today.
That's what it means to pursue this discipline of imagination and play. It's what it means to have a whole-brained formation in God. And as I've experienced firsthand time and time again myself, it's a pursuit of God that's really unlocked a lot for me that for years just felt like bare words on the page. It was stuff I believed, but it never really just, it always engaged me here, but never here. And I didn't know what, what, what was wrong. I didn't know why I wasn't experiencing the same way as other people. This practice has absolutely unlocked God's word for me in a way that's brought it to life, made it so much more real and powerful and transformative to me. There's this beautiful scene in the Gospels that we looked at a few months ago from Matthew 18. Uh, disciples, they come to Jesus one day and they say, who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we're told in response, Jesus called a little child over to him. And placing the child among them, he said this, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. By which, of course, he didn't mean for all of them or us to be childish. We should be childish in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but that we would be childlike in our faith. That is, we would be trusting, we would be reliant, we would be open. We would engage, be able to easily engage in things like imagination and play, like a child. Think about that dinner scene in Neverland we began with. Right? Who were the ones that were easily able to engage in that never feast and ate and drank and laughed until their stomachs hurt? It was the, the children, right? The lost boys sitting around that table, well experienced in the use of their imagination, whereas CEO Peter Banning, closed off to such childish pursuits, remained hungry. Invited and absolutely present at the feast, yes, but still unable to partake in it or be nourished by it. I wonder how, how many of you today, you would hear that description and that describes your current experience of the Christian faith. Invited, present at the feast, yet not able to partake in it, not able to be nourished by it yet. Still feels like empty bowls to you. Stuff you believe, but you're not fed by it yet. I wonder if Jesus' invitation in Matthew 18 to change and become like a little child isn't his invitation to you and to me today into the fullness of all that he set before us for our faith and formation. Just that we've been hindered from feasting on because at some point we believed or someone told us that imagination and play, that's just for children, that's unspiritual. But as a result, at that point we began to engage in pardon the pun, half-brain Christianity. We aren't fed by it. We're not nourished by it. Wondering why faith seems so real and alive to so many other people, but not to me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe this just doesn't work for me. My prayer for each one of us today is that you might hear and respond to Jesus' invitation to play once again. To engage in a whole brain faith where you don't just know true things about God, but you see and experience them and enjoy them in a way that's powerfully transforming. And that day by day, more and more, you are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. May that be so. And may each one of you today who take Jesus up on his invitation, even just in the smallest ways, experience a whole new beginning in your faith today, maybe that you didn't even know was possible yet. Pray that you'd start to experience that today. Amen.
Well, as we often do and take some time at the end of our message to corporately practice silence and solitude, today I want to do something different, and I want to, if you're willing, practice this discipline of imagination with me. So I'm going to put up what may be a well-known psalm for you, Psalm 23. And if you're open to it, if you're willing, there's nothing crazy or magical that's going to happen, but I pray something powerful, if you're willing to enter into this truly, and follow the Spirit's invitation to engage your imagination as you read over this psalm. Read over the different sentences and words with your left brain. That's what it's going to need. But allow your imagination to picture the truths that we're looking at. Allow yourself to experience the reality of those truths, to see them in your mind's eye in a way that touches you, in a way that's transforming to you, in a way that just the bare reading of words never could. Not because, listen, not because this is some kind of trick. This is not a mind trick to just like help you to like experience something. It's the way God designed your brain to work. That we would engage, not just today, but going forward in a whole-brained faith, a whole-brained Christianity, and experience all the fullness that he desires and wants for us to enter into and to feast on all that he's placed before us. So we're going to take a few minutes to do that together, and then we'll come and take the Lord's Supper together.